Welcome to DLN Extend, where we take a look back at the previous week of DLN shows and find topics we think deserve a deeper discussion, a PK unzip, as it were. This currently includes Destination Linux, Linux for Everyone, Ask Noah, and This Week in Linux. I'm Nate, and with me is Eric. So how are you doing today, Eric? Hey, Nate. Doing very well, thank you. How are you today? Fantastic. So you used DLN in there a bunch of times. What DLN? What, what is that? Destination Linux Network. Oh. We are part of their network now. How oh. did that happen, huh? I don't know. <laughs> well, I can't tell you how excited I am to be hosting a show with you. We've talked about doing this for such a long time. And you and I, we just don't get enough time to talk and you know be nerdy together because uh, that's what we like to do. And so this is our chance to look back at the week of events and topics covered in Destination Linux network shows. And we have such a great list of shows to pull from. So we've got Destination Linux, like Nate said, Linux for Everyone, which is Jason's show, and he does some great work over there. Ask Noah and This Week in Linux. So, I mean, we've got lots and lots of material. It's going to be hard for us to pick just a few things, but what we'd like to do is each week spend about a half an hour and dig into a couple of these interesting topics that we found maybe didn't get the amount of coverage that we thought they should, or, hey, you know what? This is our show, so maybe we had our own ideas on it. Yeah, I tend to think a little bit differently, I think, than than some people. I'm maybe old-fashioned, a bit of a curmudgeon, and like to yell at people to get off my lawn, so, you know, sometimes you I too, think huh? a little differently. Okay. <laughs> Another thing that I think we'll likely do as we go through this is try to get the folks who presented the material on their show to come here with us. We'll drag them kicking and screaming, but they'll come here with us, hopefully, and we can talk to them directly and maybe just shine our own perspective on what they had put forth. And hey, if they don't want to come on, then fine. We'll just talk about them behind their back. That works for me. Excellent. I like it. So one of the topics that came up on last week's Destination Linux was rolling release versus static release uh, in reference to CentOS having having a rolling version. So the, the rolling advantages of rolling is that the, the additional hardware enablement with new drivers and such. So the question is, is the juice worth the squeeze on rolling release? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it from a, from a technical perspective... Uh, I, mean, I can't speak to CentOS and how they can do that, but at least in the in the in the tumbleweed land, somebody has to do the QA process, you know, the automated and the manual testing as well. Every time they have a snapshot, and they can have you know two, three, sometimes four snapshots in a week. And that's a lot of extra work, a lot of extra server work. They justify it, but I mean, what what do you think on that? Well, you know, my guess with especially when we talk about rolling releases on servers, that that's going to look a little different than rolling release on desktop, simply because when you have this giant repository, and basically as soon as any new version is introduced and compiled, and it, it's just sort of flows through directly to the user. My guess is that if there is what they're claiming or terming a rolling release for a server edition, it's probably going to be a little more curated and perhaps a little more controlled than that. I would guess that there would be some milestones that packages would make before they actually get to what they would consider a production-ready version. So rolling in the sense that the kernel and certainly some of the hardware components, because I think that's the greatest advantage of a, of a rolling release. So if you look from a, from a server perspective, that's, that's going to be your advantage and, and the attraction to running 
a rolling release versus a, a static release is if you are using newer drive controllers, you're using newer, some sort of new hardware, uh, you know, Threadripper processor, something that needs, or the Epic, the, the new Epic processors, for example, so something that's going to need those newer kernel versions to run well. And certainly on a fixed release, that's you can do it. There are ways to add newer versions, newer kernels to those releases, but ultimately it's not supported usually, and it's something you're doing on your own. From that perspective, I totally get it. It makes a lot of sense. But what I'm thinking people are hearing when they hear rolling release on a server is what they experience on a desktop, which I feel is going to be a little different than that. So I'm just curious to see where it goes. I think it's a great idea in a lot of cases. Is it universally uh, applicable? I'm not entirely sure. I think there are probably going to be a lot of use cases where folks are happy with static and stay there. But certainly for some specialized circumstances, newer processors, um, newer hardware that would benefit, that's the fact that they're doing it. And it's such a large company like Red Hat, who is usually leading the way in, in many cases with virtualization, with you know, server technology, infrastructure, things like that. Uh, there's obviously merit here, and I'm definitely curious to see where it goes from there. So how often is a server actually replaced in the server room? So in terms of how long the hardware is, is supported for, you know, I think at some point really it's not so much about being cutting-edge hardware or needing to support the hardware. It's There's a period between when an LTS or a fixed release is, is, is put out there and then when new hardware comes into play where it's not supported well. And so I think that gap is what they're probably looking at in terms of, you know, you look at long-term release support for, uh, for Red Hat, for CentOS, for Ubuntu. Many of these are multi-year, three, five-year periods. You can pay for extended support beyond that. So probably what they're mostly looking at is that the new set of servers, the new hardware that they're, they're looking at procuring and getting rolled out and saying, well, the support's not good with this current fixed release. So if we, to, to bridge that gap, having the rolling release, and again, this goes back to what is what constitutes a rolling release. Uh, the rolling release could just be the standard set of packages with you know all the hardening and testing and everything that's happened, but with a newer kernel, with a newer firmware uh, set, you know, with the newer hardware enablement. And so that sort of bridges that gap between when that release was made and when this new hardware came out and which kernels support that new hardware. Well, there, there are different kinds of rolling, you could say, right? I mean, there's the Arch method of rolling, and I'm, I'm not familiar with how PC Linux OS does it, but I am familiar with OpenSUSE Tumbleweed and how they do it. They do a snapshot method, so they put the software into staging, it's tested, you know, with the OpenQA system, and that goes to its next steps where it's pushed out eventually. I don't exactly know the process, but essentially they have the factory and then staging and then it's released. Those that's what I'm aware of. And that's that's exactly what I think they're you're probably going to see is is that build process that happens, right? So something comes in, everything gets put into the unstable and then over whatever period of time they deem appropriate, then they can roll them in as needed. And I think a lot of this too is going to depend on their customers and what they're asking for. What type of sure. hardware specifically are they trying to support? So the definition of, of rolling, I think, is is probably the, the biggest single area of focus. And, and I'm sure they're going to have to articulate that very well for their customer base because some people will say, you know, rolling on a server doesn't sound like a good idea. 
So they're going to have to say, well, you're right. If it was what you're thinking rolling is, that's probably true. But this is what we mean by that. Because you could also argue that OpenSUSE Tumbleweed isn't an actual rolling distribution because they actually they do snapshots. So they're, they're just more rapid static releases, in which case, how quick does it have to change to be considered rolling? And that's what I kind of want about CentOS. If, it, if they do a snapshot method like that, I know that Fedora uses now the same open QA that, that OpenSUSE uses, the same base. A lot of developers at OpenSUSE help set that up at Fedora. So I wonder now how, uh, if, if maybe that's translating into CentOS, if they're using that same open QA system, in which case then, you know, this could be a very, very stable rolling release. So then I guess then the qu- next question I would say is, you know, should a, a server be static or rolling? Personally, I'm setting up a server to be a rolling distribution, OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, and I've been doing it now for a while, and I have not had any issues, although I've been warned not to. So what I, would, I guess I would then also matter how complex the server system is, right? How, how, how many, how, how complex the system is that they're, they're building it on. But then again, you have Docker images and whatnot too. So one of the benefits I've seen with rolling over the last several years is even on older hardware, I've, I've seen performance increases over time for these old netbooks of mine, as well as this old Dell Latitude I have next to me as well. The static releases don't get those performance increases while the rolling tends to get those a little bit sooner when their efficiency is made in the kernel and other packages. So especially with running Plasma, at least on the desktop, the getting those those newer packages, those newer the newer application stack, it has made using software on old systems much more pleasurable, much more enjoyable. You feel like that's truly just an effect of the kernel or maybe there is uh optimization in newer software as well, so some of those base packages? I think it's a little bit of both, because I know that there was a, there's been some different ways to do, they do uh, linking. I, I, I had to look it up, but the, there's a, a compile time linking or compile time, how they are able to make the code execute more efficiently now. They have these, these new routines and so forth. That's a little bit above my pay grade when it comes to my geekery, uh, but, it, but from from those that I've talked to that are in the know, they say that there are significant increases in performance based on that compile time linking and so forth that happens. Well, and when you say significant, you had mentioned that the difference was pretty dramatic between the uh, the legacy and then and the newer versions you were running in terms of those netbooks. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Where every cycle counts when you when you're when you're when your benchmark score is sub one thousand and everything else is you know pushing ten thousand. On those CPU scores, yeah, every every cycle counts. So I've noticed it. Well, and certainly from my experience as well. So this Dell XPS I have, when I got it earlier earlier this year, when I was trying to run LTS based releases, I was having a lot of issues with the hardware support in terms of the hybrid graphics and sleep state and some other things. What I noticed that there was a period of time, there was a catch up period, and it's kind of what I was alluding to earlier, where. Now I can run something like 1904 and even 1810 if I'm using you know Ubuntu parlance. Those made a difference over 1804. So as time has moved forward, I've had a better experience on fixed releases. At the beginning, I was having much better success with the rolling release because they tended to just have newer software, newer kernels, newer hardware enablement. And so again, I can see how rolling makes perfect sense in that case. And even in my case with this laptop, at first it was pretty much my only option. And now as that catch up period has passed and it's now, a you know, basically a two-year-old model, Linux is, is working fine, even the LTS stuff. So back to the original question, is the juice worth the squeeze? 
I have to say that I think it is. And certainly for some of these new exciting things like the Epic processor and other technologies companies might need for some of their super high-end equipment that they're trying to get in place. And it certainly seems like it's a need that Red Hat is filling. And I'll be interested to see if others follow suit and uh, try to come up with a competitive product for them. I'm also interested in seeing what what comes of CentOS. It's definitely different than their other offerings. I kind of felt like CentOS became kind of stale, but now it seems to have some a new exciting hotness around it at this point. I think it also underscores the idea that any anything that we have thought about how servers should be run or how computers should be run, they are upsetting that, and I like that. So a few weeks ago on Destination Linux, Noah had brought up a topic about using hardware to its fullest and to the extent which it will continue to run. And in many cases, we have distributions that are dropping support for 32-bit and for older systems. And for the mainstream, I think that makes sense because certainly newer systems are not going to be 32-bit. They haven't been made in a decade or so. But what you find is there's a lot of hardware out there that would otherwise end up in a landfill or be considered obsolete that is perfectly usable. It may not be high-end, cutting-edge equipment, but from, from the perspective of a usable system, they still have merit. Noah was really trying to get to the heart of how to use those systems. And I, when he was talking about it, Nate immediately popped into my mind because Nate is such an aficionado of older technology, but just the idea that the technology still has merit and can be used to do things that are not just considered antiquated, but have a real purpose. And so, Nate, I I just thought this would be something interesting to talk about with you. Well, it's something that I absolutely am all about is utilizing old hardware because just because it's old doesn't mean it's totally obsolete. I mean, look at me. I'm I'm past end of life, you know, as far as the computer's concerned, and I'm still useful. Even my, uh, I, I built an IP firebox for my, my house as a router and edge device. And I used a Dell Optiplex Pentium 4 for that. I don't remember exactly what it is offhand. But the power supply is not drawing that much power. I mean, if you look at it, I think it's rated, it's rated pretty low as far as how much it, how much it actually pulls. But the, uh, the CPU is hardly being utilized at all for that, that function. And, and I know that an x86 Pentium 4 can handle I.O. a lot better than even a modern Raspberry Pi. Maybe not, maybe not so much the Pi 4, but I can actually touch this box and not burn my hand on this, this, uh, you know, this old, this 16-year-old computer. Yeah, there is that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I pop in a, a new hard drive into it for, um, you know, so it doesn't, you know, blank out on me and then I'm good to go. It's all very industry standard. You know, there's a PCI slot in there. So, so replacement hardware is very easy to, uh, to come by. You know, it's, it's, it's tested tried and true hardware and it's been running nonstop for pretty close to a year now, I would say. Yeah. Where does that leave people like you who have these systems that want to continue running them when all the distributions seemingly collectively continue to drop support? What do you think about like, I think Fedora is the one that, that recently dropped it. Is that correct? That's when it last yes. made in the news. Yep. Fedora, it's kind of um I look at Fedora as as not the legacy distribution. Like they don't they don't they don't they're a very forward leaning distribution. I mean, unless I'm wrong there. But they always have they've always seemed like they're they're testing new things and you got the silver blue now, which that's that's not a that's not a recycled concept. That's a very new concept. They're always testing new ways of doing things. And the way they're they're working on on their software, they're optimizing for future leaning technology. So I, I don't see the a valid business reason for them to focus on 32-bit te- you know, technology, 32-bit x86 technology. It just doesn't make sense. I think Ubuntu, I, 
I actually am okay with the idea of Ubuntu even dropping 32-bit. And I'm going to say that because they're targeting consumer-based devices. This is mass market consumer-based devices. That's that's who their target market is. So why would they want to target old 32-bit hardware? I don't I don't see the business value there either. But then you have Debian, and they target yes. So <laughs> they target everything. I, I don't think there's an architecture you cannot get Debian on. But that makes sense for them because Debian is a it's community-based. It's what the community wants to do, and their market is is pretty much everything. They, I think they're kind of like the old-fashioned idealist of what Linux is supposed to. What I why I went into Linux, you know, they're they're kind of the although I have no beard, they're kind of the you know the, the gray beards of of Linux distributions, and so they're probably going to support a 32-bit until the last one finally ends up in you know being crushed and reused for its silicon components. And, you know, then you have MX Linux and Antics. They they kind of taken that and, and they use that old hardware. Bunsen Labs, it's another 32-bit ready distribution, if I, should, if I can say that, that runs great on this old hardware. And, and, and actually running something like a Bunsen Labs or Antics or MX Linux on old 32-bit hardware with, you know, a couple gigs of RAM, you can even Netflix, well, not Netflix, you could Netflix, but you could YouTube in it. And I did I did do the YouTubes on it and it was, uh, it was all right. A little jerky at times, but the sound quality was good. It, you could tell the computer was stressing, but it could do it. And, and if, you're, if you're using a, a, a system like that, maybe for a simple file server or in a house or, you know, basic office tasks, it's going to be able to do that fine. And I don't know, just, just tossing out working hardware just kind of, I don't know, kind of grinds my gears a bit. So I'm, I'm glad that there's still some love out there for, for 32-bit. Well, you mentioned the idea that you would use an older system for, let's say, a less intensive process. And that's certainly one of the ways that I was using hardware for quite a while. I had a file server, I had a media server, and these were basically castaway systems from customers of mine or relatives, people who had gotten their use out of them, but the hardware itself was perfectly fine, but was getting slow for the types of things that they were doing. So I was able to take it and repurpose it, put some extra drives in it, you know, install Debian was what I was using at the time, and everything worked fine. That use case, I think, is still completely valid. But I have a question. Do you think that the way people think about it now is that the ARM chips and the Pies and things like that, has that sort of supplanted the idea that you would be using that old laptop or that old desktop sitting in your closet somewhere because now you have this little low power device that essentially, depending on how old that old system is, could be as powerful as like you were saying. So, And they're so inexpensive too, like the, the price to get into those is, is so low. So I, I wonder if that's why there isn't as much of a outcry or, a, or why this isn't as big a deal as it might otherwise be because you have this ARM chipset and these very inexpensive, you know, system on a chip computers out there now that can fill these functions. So the reason I didn't use a Raspberry Pi, which I could have for this IP Fire setup is, well, one, it's not as tested. It's, it's, uh, was never built to be a production type machine. And to ha- put another network interface card on a Raspberry Pi is not really possible. And maybe it is with a hat or something, but then I got to buy all these different parts and pieces and put them together. And so you have some unknowns there because it's, it's a hobby level device. Then you have the power supplies. How many, I've gone through several of those Raspberry Pi power supplies and I've gone through zero power supplies on this Pentium 4. And also, I can get parts for this. I have a bunch of them littering my basement right now, these Pentium 4 machines. And so I got parts for years. And I think not having to hope that your component's going to last in a Raspberry Pi is worth the extra few cents in power you might spend a year for that Pentium 4. 
the other thing too is how long do those SD cards last in a Raspberry Pi? And if I'm not going to use the SD cards, I'm going to use some sort of other like a USB. I'm going to have like this mess of cables and things. It's not really in a nice, neat little box. Oh, I'm sure I could actually make a nice box for it. But then how much of my time is being spent trying to arrange all this, these Raspberry Pi bits in a kind of a hacked together fashion? You're not going to be making a Raspberry Pi supercomputer anytime soon? Now, the idea is very neat to me, but it's not really uh, high on my list. I would rather suck down my, you know, my electricity and my power bill and, and see if I can turn all these 32-bit machines into something just, just because. Oh, or maybe get a few more Commodore 64s and make a Super 64, huh? Hey, there you go. <laughs> you can run the, rule the IRC world. It's a, how many if I have three of those together? Three Commodore 64s with 64 kilobytes of memory? That's, that's going to be real effective. Um, but I think that Raspberry Pis have a place absolutely have a place but not really like in critical segments of your of your infrastructure you know like maybe a raspberry pi is a dns server something that can that's not really very high demanding and i don't know if i could do an onside one pentium 4 i think i'd still prefer that i have more faith and confidence you recently reused some hardware as as did i when rebuilding a computer uh, rather than get a new case and get all new components, I replaced the motherboard and the memory and the processor. I reused my video card. I just didn't see a need to get rid of these components because, honestly, PC hardware nowadays, and I, when I say nowadays, I would say within the last at least five years, seems to be so much more reliable than it used to. And I don't know if this is just as a result of the manufacturing processes being better or the quality control. That was not the case 15 years ago or 20 years ago, where power supplies would fail and boards would fail and things would would just go awry on a seemingly regular basis. And frankly, I, I know that isn't always the case that it's bulletproof. But for the most part, when I think of the current crop of hardware that we have and the idea that that does reach back into the end of the 32-bit era, there's a lot of machines out there that are perfectly viable that will continue to run for quite a long time. And not everybody updates their system every two years. The idea that we just decide that this is old hardware and there's no use for it, I think is a little short-sighted. And I'm glad that there are distributions out there that continue to support it and hopefully will continue, like you said, with Debian and some others into the foreseeable future. I think if you look at the circuit board design today, although less serviceable, they, they take, I think the, the, the automated process they do, they use for making, for, for soldering these together is, is greatly improved in the last, I don't know, 15 years for sure, that something can last a long time. I mean, you don't, you don't have the same capacitor blowouts that you used to have, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. I was, I was just looking at this board here and th- there's even a coating on the board too. You can tell that they put on there. I remember resistance that. Resistance to humidity yeah. Yeah. And, uh-huh. and, and so forth. Like there's, I mean, they've, they've done a lot, they've changed a lot on how they manufacture these boards. And sure, I think, you know, a Raspberry Pi would do fine. I'm not confident yet. It's not really as broad of a platform to target, really. Because if you target x86, you target a lot of hardware. And you target ARM, you're targeting a very a small sliver of that ARM. And although Raspberry Pi and Pine64, I think they probably brought some validity to ARM. You read all the, the clickbaity headlines about ARM's gonna, eating x86 lunch. But I don't know, there's just too much ARM to target. You know, which one do you want to target? Which one do you want to make your platform? And, you know, I'm not confident that if I install a Raspberry Pi today, that in five years, one, it's still going to be running, or two, that I'm not going to have to rebuild something or replace a bunch of parts in that time. And that's kind of where I sit with that. Yeah. Well, it was interesting to hear Alan Pope talk about compiling for ARM and how HP had had these servers that were ARM-based and then they discontinued them and they decided they were just going to buy the rest of the stock that they had. (laughs) 
Um, so, and I think also with ARM, you're looking at IoT and 5G, you know, that's sort of interconnected, sure. every, everything's on. And, and so I think there is certainly a push there. And then you look at things like the Pinebook and, and Chromebooks, low power devices, portable devices. So I think ARM definitely has its place, but in terms of maybe that home file server or that system that's dedicated to some process that isn't necessarily intensive, but it's just sitting in a closet somewhere, those old machines, I think, still have a lot of validity. And also some of those laptops, you know, a high-end laptop from eight, 10 years ago is not an unusable machine. It's not probably not going to be the best experience, but for someone who doesn't have an alternative, it's better than not having anything. I have a 13-year-old Dell Latitude. It's a D630. I think it's 13 years old now. I still run Plasma on that, and actually it runs it pretty well, if not for those Nuvo drivers being a little bit squirrely from time to time. Mm -hmm. It's it's actually a rock-solid machine. Jason Evangelo gave this thought exercise, flagship Linux devices. And I saw that you commented pretty heavily on that on the discourse forum there, Eric. I did. Uh, Just the idea of seeing those words written down was kind of an odd thing to me. The the idea that there's a flagship Linux product, uh, and, and we're talking about a hardware device, so that would be a laptop or a desktop. You know, my opinion, most, if not all, Linux hardware is just essentially generic PC hardware. Not that that's a bad thing. And certainly the idea around a flagship, and and I think that's probably where we have to spend the time is defining what that means. In my mind, as soon as I see flagship, I think high-end, right? Uh, Brand new, right? Just being released. And also well-supported, well-marketed, and really being pushed by the company as a prominent thing. I think of all those definitions, Linux doesn't necessarily come to mind, or there's no one product or set of products that comes to mind in the Linux space. You certainly have builders like System76 or Dell or Lenovo or others that do support Linux and do offer some systems with Linux, but almost never do you consider them to be the highest end hardware or are they very well marketed or prominent in any way on their marketing materials or website or anything like that. So to just see Jason say, well, what what would you consider the flagship for Linux? I thought, I, I don't know that that thing exists. I literally never thought of that before that post. Like that was a thought exercise that really made me sore because there's you know flagship phones. You know you have the Samsung's Galaxy or you know Apple's something. Whatever I don't know Apple, but you know Apple's got stuff, something shiny with a half-eaten apple on it. And then you know Windows devices. You have the Surface, and I, I didn't really like associate Windows and Surface as being flagship. I mean I, I guess it's not really flagship for gaming, really. And then I thought, well, what, what would flagship Linux devices be? It's, you know, it's wherever I stake my flag for, for Linux, right? <laughs> so you had some ideas on that, though. I, I, I did. I, I was started, like, looking around, and I knew about Dell and, and uh, System76, and there's others out there, Tuxedo Computers, but I can't buy from them, so I have to buy from U.S. sellers. And looking at the at what Dell has, they actually have a web page now, or, yeah, an actual site dedicated toward you know, Linux systems. Uh, not, not exactly the easiest URL to find, but it is there. But Linux workstations and laptops, and they have a lot... And I mean a lot of, of options. There are signature products, the XPS 13 Developer Edition and the Precision 5540 Mobile Workstation. Those are not cheap systems, you know, for Windows anyway. I mean, the, the, the Precision work Mobile Workstation has a 64 gigabyte of memory limit in there, which I, I didn't know that was even available in a laptop and uh, NVIDIA Quattro uh, graphics cards. But then they have uh, these Precision Towers that, uh, you know, have a lot of storage space. Uh, 
or memory, a lot of capabilities. Have the AMD Radeon Pro or, or NVIDIA Quattro graphics, up to three terabytes of memory and up to 136 terabytes of storage. It's ready for VR, AR, and AI. Sounds like it's ready for anything. And, <laughs> Jeez. And, <laughs> and it, uh, it comes with Ubuntu 18.04 LTS preloaded. So that might also uh, circle back to our previous conversation about rolling versus static. I mean, Dell's not going to ship a garbage operating system with their machines, not a machine like that they're not going to. So obviously they've tested it. Kind of makes you think. It does. And you know, the other thing that pops into my mind, and we talked about this a little bit before, is the idea that Linux in many ways is seen as a way to revitalize older hardware, where perhaps the operating system that is on that hardware is no longer supported or no longer running well. And so you would say, okay, I can reappropriate that equipment with Linux and have a better experience on there. And so that is, <clears throat> that's sort of the anti-flagship approach, if you were to look at it that way. And it's interesting, so this perception of Linux is perhaps being the second operating system that, that would inhabit a PC, uh, where now it's, maybe we're looking at Linux as the the best option, which, <clears throat> you know, we in the Linux community may have our opinions on that already, but the larger world uh, in general have their own and, and their own wouldn't necessarily include Linux in many cases. So the idea that these companies are pushing that out there as an option, however small that use case might be, if these systems are being used in laboratories and, you know, as workstations and scientific endeavors, uh, you know, all the places that we know Linux is being used uh, heavily in, in academics and things like that. Then you also have the contingent of gamers now where you've got Steam and Proton and new hardware coming out that's being supported the release of the NVIDIA 435 drivers with support for hybrid graphics now. So we're really seeing the hardware catch up in a lot of ways, or the, the I guess the support for the hardware catching up in a lot of ways. And also the idea that mainstream popular uh, outlets like you know, Linus Text Tips and uh, different places are, are actually making videos and content about Linux, getting people interested. And those people are now coming and trying Linux in a serious way with, with their hardware. And, and a lot of these gamers have hardware that is very new, very cutting edge. And I have an opinion that I think some distributions are missing the boat in, in a lot of ways because they're not either being developed or tested towards this newer equipment. And whether or not that's a holdover of the idealism of whether or not that's a holdover of the idea that this is being used on older equipment, or if it's the developers themselves don't have access to this newer hardware, you know, how many developers have dual 4K monitors or dual graphic cards or Threadripper processor, things like that. So I think potentially there is a bit of a gap there in coverage. Well, I think if System76 and Dell are building machines to run Linux right out of the gate, you know, they're, they're obviously seeing that there is a value in Linux being the primary operating system on these machines. They're not, it's not an afterthought, it's a forethought. And if they're running it on LTS, if they're, if they're running this on an Ubuntu LTS 18.04, or I did that backwards, Ubuntu 18.04 LTS, and certified for Red Hat, I mean, they're, they're not doing this just to, to feel good about themselves, they're doing this to make money. So obviously there's a there's a valid business reason for this. This this is being used for, I mean, it could be used for machine learning too. I mean, that's that's a, a big thing I know that my employer is doing now too, is, is machine learning. Nothing creepy, learning about food, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> and there's a, there's a lot of developments going on here. So the, I have the question in my mind of, 
this whole chicken and egg situation where I have to assume that hardware manufacturers don't offer a deep line of Linux products because there's just not a huge market for them, and particularly in the consumer space. So we're talking about machine learning and AI and scientific pursuits and maybe rendering workstations, sort of the traditional use cases for Linux. And those seem to be what's driving a lot of this forward. But I wonder if there were, let's say, a company offering a gaming laptop or a gaming desktop that was optimized for Linux. And as, as I've heard, I'm not a huge gamer myself, but some people have told me and I've seen, I've read some things where even the Windows native games that are running through Proton and Steam have better performance in some cases on Linux. So that's pretty compelling if that's, you know, a game you want to run and want it to run better on your hardware. But I wonder if companies offer those products, will people buy them? Because that's really what's going to drive adoption or drive these companies to offer these products is if there's a market for them. And I I would like to believe that that would be the case, that if they offered them, that people would buy them. And I know System76 is presumably doing a good job and uh, doing well with their sales and growing. But I just, I wonder beyond these use cases, beyond these workstations that are more focused on traditional use cases for Linux, are we going to see an adoption for more mainstream consumer based, whether or not that's gamer focused or not? I think with gamer, I, I mean, to me, I, I think more System76 than Dell. I mean, Dell does say here they're developer-targeted laptops and mobile workstations for businesses, engineers, and scientists. They don't have gamer on that list. I, I don't think that means you can't, but it just, it's just not what they're targeting. I think with Athelio, though, that's that's a different ball of wax right there. Even the look is more like what a gamer would have as opposed to what the Dell workstations look like. I, don't know, I think that the, uh, the the gaming side, now, I'm not a big gamer. I mean, my computer runs the, my Super Nintendo emulator just fine, so... I mean, beyond that, I'm not, I don't have a whole lot of demands for my system, but it looks like if, if that, you know, with, with Steam and Proton and, and stuff like that, you, know, you, you tip that over just a little bit further, tip that scale over, you, I mean, you get, you get like 10% adoption and that's, that's changed. Yeah. That, that fixes that chicken and the egg problem a lot. So you mentioned using Dell laptops and having many successive sort of generations of laptop Dell laptops, which I have done as well with the Inspiron series and now the XPS. I think you were using uh, a, a different latitudes. Line, the latitudes. None of those were ever designed to run Linux. They weren't sold that way. They came with Windows. This XPS, at least, I immediately took the NVMe drive that was in it and replaced it with one that had Linux on it. So I never ran Windows on it, but it runs Linux perfectly fine. So I wonder, again, even beyond gamers, you know, let's just say general use systems, you and I are proficient Linux users. We're going to use that hardware however we see fit. I think when people think about adoption of Linux or just general use by random people, the argument always comes up, well, if the hardware isn't being sold with Linux on the system already, the odds of someone choosing to go through installing Linux are very low. And I agree with that. So I wonder with this whole discussion around Linux and having systems available with Linux pre-installed, if if that's a direction we're actually heading, or if it's always going to stick to these specialty niches where it's just AI and high you know performance workstations, and systems that really are very expensive, considering if you were just looking for a, an everyday general use system. Well, Dell, some years ago, did have, have they were Inspiron class machines, I think N-series laptops that were in the, um, you could buy, I think, in like at Walmart or whatever. And those didn't really take off real well, from what I remember. So you buy Chromebooks now in Walmart or, or Best Buy or whatever. And that's a Linux desktop. And I, I feel like they're, they're, probably, they're going after specific niche 
but I I don't know that that's that's not certainly not the gamer niche. I mean, so you, I I feel like Linux has got like the really low end. I'm sorry, I'm going to call Chromebooks low end, even even if they are super expensive. To me, they're just a low end machine until they fix their keyboards and have them stop being stupid. I'm not going to not use a proper machine. I'm not, I'm not going to use Chromebook for a, a real machine because you, you're missing function keys and everything else. So um, it's a toy. Chromebook is a toy, and I think the keyboard is just depressingly stupid, honestly. <laughs> So anyway, the uh, so I feel like you have kind of like the low end for children, for the Chromebooks for the children that they can learn Linux on, and then you have the high end workstations and really high end machines that are super expensive. So it's kind of like that middle ground there. That's mm-hmm. that I feel like that's the area where Linux is kind of not really is not really gaining a lot of steam, or actually maybe it is gaining steam now because of steam. Ah, <laughs> uh, there, see what I did there. That's good. Zeb had mentioned testing Ubuntu 19.10, the A1 Ermine beta release, and he had mentioned looking at a couple of different distributions, and I've done the same thing in terms of the flavors. So I've looked at Ubuntu proper and Kubuntu and Budgie and Mate and Lubuntu and Ubuntu Studio. Did I miss any? Kylan. I didn't do Kylan. But hey, I tried the rest Where do you of have them. the time? Well, you know... I'm a dedicated man. What can I say? And I am an unabashed uh, Ubuntu fan. I can't help it. Uh, they've been so good to me over the years. I can't help but think, you know, every successive release is, is like a gift to me personally. So yeah, I've gone through and honestly, it's in many cases, it's more of the same, which is great because that is sort of what I would expect out of Ubuntu. They tend to iterate and especially in these point releases, because this is not an LTS release. This is a, uh, just a interim sort of short term nine month re- release. So a lot of it is sort of evolutionary, what you'd expect, but there are a couple of really cool things. And especially for me in this release. And the biggest one is the NVIDIA 435 driver series, which now includes native offload support for prime. So this was something in previous releases where the, it supported prime profiles and you could say, I wanted to use the Intel chip or I want to use the NVIDIA chip, not simultaneously, but you could pick between them. And obviously you'd use the Intel chip for power saving or um, you know less heat being generated, less battery usage, that sort of thing. And if you needed the 3D rendering performance, you could switch over to the, to the NVIDIA profile and you log out, log back in, and there you go. So it wasn't difficult, but when I think about this laptop that I have that was purchased that came with Windows, where that NVIDIA driver was supporting the offloading function of switching between those GPUs, the hybrid graphic concept, as just a natively supported thing because, of course, Windows. And the fact that I couldn't do that on Linux other than either that switching process I just mentioned, or there are different ways to do it like Bumblebee and Optimus Manager. So there are different projects that sort of go towards achieving that goal that never quite reach the same level of either performance or ease of use because in some cases you have to be explicit and, and wrap things and launchers. And again, it's just not the same experience. And it's a shame that it's been that way. But I can say in the 1910 release, my testing with 435 with offloading has been very positive. All just seems to work out of the box, which is amazing that this has happened. And uh, beyond that, newer kernel and some updated packages and all of the things you would expect. So it's all been very positive for me. I've had some minor crashes using the bug reporting tool and I've reported a few things, but it's a beta. It's what you expect. And uh, But beyond that, it's been pretty lovely. So how do you actually offload sync to the dedicated GPU? 
Well, so there is a profile. In my case, I have an XPS 15 9570, which has a GTX 1050 Ti mobile and the onboard Intel chip. And so if you install the proprietary driver, and that's the other thing is that it actually, the installation media comes with the proprietary driver now. So instead of needing to download it as part of the installation, if you had a connection or install it later, it just gets installed now. But what it does when you first boot in is it's on the NVIDIA profile. And in order to enable the offloading, you actually have to switch that profile to on-demand. So you use sudo prime-select space on-demand. And you set that, you log out and log back in. Now you're in this hybrid mode. And then there are modes called offload GLX and offload Vulkan. And there are also some applications that are just aware of the fact that the NVIDIA processor is available. So I noticed in OBS Studio, for example, that the NVENC encoder was just available. I didn't have to do anything special. It was just there. And I noticed that it was a few other things. I think Steam is aware as well. So yeah, they've overcome a significant challenge that I've had for a long time with this laptop in this release. And it's very exciting. And it's also exciting because this is the staging point for the 2004 release, which will be the next LTS release. And so the fact that they may have figured out hybrid graphics in a meaningful way that will let their next LTS run on laptop hardware in a much better way than it has thus far is very exciting. So I've been using an AMD laptop now that has hybrid graphics. It's Intel, CPU, AMD, GPU. And the way I've been able to offload sync is whatever application it is, I, I type in in front of it, DRI underscore prime equals one, and then whatever the application name is, and then offload syncs it to that. Is it that simple or even more seamless than that for what Ubuntu has done? Like I said, so some applications just seem to be aware and able to. So if you think of how this would work on Windows, you don't really explicitly tell, you can, but you don't explicitly tell Windows which GPU to use, whether it's the integrated or the dedicated. And I'm seeing some of that behavior in Ubuntu itself. And so, and, and this this all stems from, I believe, Mate, Ubuntu Mate, Martin Wimpress, and, and that team did a lot of work on having a tray application that allows switching, but then also the offload as well. And that's, uh, I believe, a package called Mate-Optimus. And so if you install that, that's what gives you that offload GLX and offload Vulkan. And I believe the logic that's in there is what's behind these applications being aware that the NVIDIA card is available. I am not going to claim to be an expert on this. I, I didn't dig in deeply to really understand it fully, but I will tell you that just as a end user out of the box and doing these few steps, things just seem to work in a way that before would have required me to install Bumblebee or some other way to work around this. And then also to do some extra configuration. And then each time I would load one of those applications, I would have to be explicit to say Primus run or Opti run or something like that, which is a wrapper to uh, to make sure that it's using the right offloaded card. Got it. Okay. That's interesting. I'm interested in seeing how that all shakes out over time. Because typically if Ubuntu is doing it now, it trickles down to other distributions eventually because they push that stuff up. They push up all their goodness, their little lick- lickies and chewies. <laughs> oh boy. All the goodness. Well, and it isn't, it, like I said, it is, it, so it's a staging point. And this is a relatively new, so 435 is a pretty new driver as well. So I was glad to see that they pushed to get it in 1910. And I kind of feel like they had to because this is going to give them the amount of time. This next six months is going to be the testing period for that and whether or not or what, to what degree it gets included or refined for that 2004 long-term support release. 
So the last thing I'd say is that if you haven't had a chance to test the betas, if you have the chance to do it, or if you have the interest, it would be a good idea because now is the best time to give feedback to the team and to provide feedback on hardware that maybe they haven't tested or don't have access to. And also Popey, Alan Pope, has been doing some streams this week on testing, and he's going through the various distributions, and those streams are out on his YouTube channel. So if you had any interest in seeing his progress testing the releases, and also just some of the things he's run into. And he's very candid, which I appreciate because when he sees something he doesn't like, he definitely mentions it and then takes it back to the team. So I know out of this testing that he's done this week, he has gone back with several issues and logged bugs and talked to folks about ways to improve the user experience because he's approaching it very much from the perspective of if I were just some average user installing this release, how would I experience this? How, how would I see this? And, and how would I deal with something that I've encountered? Uh, so it's a very interesting look at it. Alan does a great job of going through it in a lighthearted way, in a way that's uh, fun to watch. I suggest that if you have any interest in that, go check it out. And I appreciate how he has a very structured and very methodical way of going through and testing it, even to go so far as a script to automatically download the different flavors so that he can test them more efficiently, pulling down the dailies. Sounds like a 90s alt-rock band pulling down the dailies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also like how um, you know bug reporting is, is something a lot of people don't do. And, and I, I feel like it's really easy these days to actually accomplish the bug reporting. It's not hard to do. Even so far as, I, mean, I can't, I've not done any bug reporting for, for Ubuntu, but for OpenSUSE, if I start typing in whatever the bug is, like related to that, it starts to automatically filter down and show what potential bugs are that you might be talking about. Yeah, and I've found that in my testing, there have been system crashes and things like that. And the bug reporting tool pretty much does everything for you. It will log, it captures all the system data, the snapshot, the relevant logs and everything it might need to provide information to the developers. And it will also push that out to their bug tracking software. So in those cases where it crashes and it gives you a warning or a message, there's no identifiable information. It's not like you should worry about any of that. And obviously, if there's something crashing, you should probably report it if you can. And they've made it pretty much as easy as it could possibly be because it's not like you need to fill out a bunch of forms or go to a bunch of different websites. You essentially just follow along with what the tool's prompting you to do, make a couple decisions, in some cases maybe fill in, you know, some some information on what you were doing, that kind of thing. And it's pretty painless. And the end result is you won't get that problem in the pro- in the future if you report it, hopefully. And you help out other people too in the process. You're helping out a lot of potentially millions of people just by uh, a few little clicks here and there and some some descriptions of what's going on. The idea that that hardware coverage is a big deal, right? So the the developers have the systems they have and folks who are sort of dedicated to testing have the systems they have. But until those ISOs and those releases get out to a larger public, there are so many varieties and combinations and possibilities of hardware and not only the hardware itself, but then the software environment, which applications you choose to install, how you configure your system. You know, maybe you have different monitors. There's so many different possible things that could be factors that you just can't account for as part of the development process. So if you encounter those things, they may seem obscure, they may be frustrating, but ultimately, if you take a little bit of time to report them back, then they will be addressed, hopefully, and then not something you ever have to deal with again, or as Nate said, someone else that's in your position.
We hope you enjoyed what we discussed today, and certainly we assume you have some opinions on this of your own. And if you do, there are plenty of ways to get in touch with not only us, but, but with the larger Destination Linux network community. There is a Telegram group, which is just about at a thousand users now, which is kind of amazing. And there's a Discourse server as well, which is an excellent forum. There are some fantastic discussions happening over there. We actually referenced a few of them in this episode. And there is also a Mumble server and a Discord server. So there are lots and lots of ways to come and say hi, to come and tell us how absolutely wrong we were in everything we said, which that can't be the case. But, you know, in case there's someone out there that disagreed with us, that's how you could do it. And uh, besides that, we will be back next week with another show. We really want you to participate with us here on Destination Linux Network. Whether we're right, we're wrong, you have a better opinion. I mean, it's not going to be better than mine. But one that's fitting for you, please let us know. There's always more than one way to look at any of these subjects. I'd like to thank everybody for taking the time out of their busy week to listen to us. And certainly hope you enjoyed what we covered this week. Well, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you carving out any time for us. It's a lot of fun to talk Linux, to talk tech, and be a nerd. And if I can share my nerdiness with the greater Linux community at large, all the better. See yous. <laughs> See yous. <laughs> <laughs>